Thank you for listening to the Bible preaching ministry of Dr. Tim Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Welcome to the Lord's Day. First day of the week. That's what we do. It's the Lord's Day because God is number one. My, hasn't this year gone by fast? My goodness. Only two more Sundays in 2023. It's been an awesome year. I'm so thankful to God for His grace And I'm thankful to each one of you. I love you. So grateful to God for your support and for your love for souls. It's been an amazing year. We are in a series and have one more next Sunday. From the Cradle to the Crown is our current series. The Early Life of Christ. We've been going through Luke chapter 1 and now finishing Luke chapter 2. And then we're going to put the cherry on top next Sunday on Christmas Sunday. And going to talk about the subject, uh, where is Jesus? We're going to go back over what we're going to go today, and Jesus uh, was not found among the, the troop there. Where was he? Well, he was back in Jerusalem. Where is Jesus? Today's uh, our seventh in our series, An Unprecedented Childhood. Now, there are actually few biblical, which are the only reliable details, but there are are few biblical details about the childhood of Jesus. But as we'll see today, the facts that we are given are incredible, and they portray truly an unprecedented life. But since that information is limited over the years, people have been tempted to try to fill in details and sometimes even create their own reality. There are many stories about Jesus that have circulated for years, in fact, some of them going back to ancient times. Some of these have only come to light in recent years. Some actually, uh, from some of the sources, appear to be somewhat accurate, maybe even helpful, but they're not inspired. They're not given by God, and so whatever good they are, we can't count them as equal to God's Word. There are books, for example, ancient books. You may have heard of the book of Enoch. It's not a biblical book, but it is a book, while it doesn't refer to Jesus, it is somewhat biblically correct, but much of it is false, and it has been proven to be historically inaccurate. At best, it's just interesting, certainly not inspired, and absolutely not the authoritative Word of God. And then there are other books, ancient books, that are neither accurate or helpful, such as the fake gospel called the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. Now, the Infancy Gospel of Thomas is supposedly, and you know, every Christmas season and every Easter season, uh, the mainstream media will bring up all these uh, extra gospels. You know, it'll say, you know, a new gospel found, and is it true? And 
Well, we know that it's not if it's a new gospel. But these uh, gospel, like the gospel, the infancy gospel of Thomas, supposedly is about Jesus. And because it's ancient, people will take it and say, well, maybe it really was. However, when they read through the, this particular book, they'll find all kinds of fanciful stories. For example, one of the things in this book that Jesus supposedly did was that he came upon some fish that had been dried, being ready to be eaten, and he took them and threw them in the water, and they began to swim away. Another time, on the Sabbath day, he was uh, crafting out of some clay some little sparrows, and then he breathed on them, and they flew away. Or, in this particular gospel, the infancy of St. Thomas, Jesus cursed a child, he's a child himself, and he cursed a child, and the child died, and then his parents went blind. Well, and then one final story, there's others in that book, but uh, Jesus, in order to help his dad, who was a carpenter, uh, who had a rich client, he helped stretch a piece of wood so that they could make a bed for that client. Well, the truth of the matter is the stories in the infancy of the Gospel of Thomas are more capricious and more like a bully, frankly. Um, and for good reason, the authenticity of that gospel is rejected. But what we're given by Dr. Luke here in Luke chapter 2 through verse 39 through the end of the chapter is absolutely incredible. And it's the only incidence that we have for the first 30 years of his life. And the only words that Jesus ever recorded, he said, of course, we know he said more, but these are the only recorded ones in the first three decades of his life. And so it is a thrill this morning to look at an unprecedented childhood. Someone speculated that what the first Christmas might have been like had it been wise women that had come from the east instead of wise men. First of all, they said it would have been, they would have asked for directions and have made it to Bethlehem on time. Second of all, they would have helped with the delivery cleaned up the stable, brought some practical gifts like a casserole so they would have something to eat. Well, male or female, I'm glad you're here today, and I know God's going to be with us. Let's all bow for prayer. Father, we thank you that uh, your gospel is true, and thank you you've left it for us. And Lord, whether young or old, male or female, you've got a word for us today. I pray that you'll meet with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we were in Luke chapter 2, and we ended last week with the amazing testimony of an older man of God. I love the story in Luke chapter 2, the last verses, because we see some bookends. A very young couple, uh, Mary and Joseph, who were younger and therefore could care for the physical needs of their child. And a wonderful old couple, uh, Simeon, though they weren't together, but wonderful Simeon and Anna. Each one of them, their testimony was sure. In fact, this is the Messiah. He is the promised one that would be a light to the Gentiles and bring glory to Israel. And that's all well and good. We've heard from the parents. We've heard from Simeon. We've heard from Anna. We've heard from others. But now we need to hear from Jesus himself. 
Is he the Messiah? Is this something he wants? Is this something that has been given to him? Or is it being forced on him? Do his attributes, do his, does his lifestyle validate his true identity as God in the flesh? Excuse me. I might have to cut the cough eventually. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. My hand for a minute. Alright. Now there is a incident. A remarkable incident in the early life of our Lord that is recorded for us. And for some reason, God the Holy Spirit wanted us to know what happened in the life of God the Son. Now there is absolutely no question when you read scripture as to the true identity of Jesus. Jesus came as a helpless babe, yet he is the ancient of days. Jesus began his ministry by being hungry, yet he is the bread of life. Jesus ended his earthly ministry by being thirsty, and yet he is the living water. Jesus was weary, and yet he is our rest. Jesus paid tribute, yet he is the king. Jesus was accused of having a demon, and yet he cast out demons. Jesus wept. And yet he wiped away our tears. Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver, yet he redeemed the world. Jesus was brought as a lamb to the slaughter, yet he is the good shepherd. Jesus died, and yet by his death, he destroyed the power of death. Yes, his identity is clear. He is the Messiah. Now let's look what he says, and let's look what the Bible says that he did in his early life. Verse 39 when they had performed all things according to the law, they returned into Galilee, into their own city, Nazareth. Performing all things according to the law. That actually refers back a few verses. All those things that we were told in Scripture that Joseph and Mary did. And when we talk about the birth of Christ, everybody knows the story of the manger and room in the inn, but few people know about her purification and her paying uh, her, her giving and Joseph and about Simeon and about Anna, yet the same God who wrote the story about the manger and the inn wrote the rest of it, and God wants us to know all of that. Young teenage Joseph, probably 14 or 15, Mary, probably 13 or 14, were steadfast, Bible-believing followers of Jehovah God. Now remember, Jehovah, the way the Hebrews pronounce that is Yahweh, because they don't pronounce the vowels. It's the same word as Jesus, because it means God saves, or Jehovah saves. Now, once a Israelite woman would give birth, she would complete a series of ceremonial practices that were beautiful pictures of respect for God, 
a picture of being separate from the world, a picture of being cleansed from sin, a picture of being dedicated to Jehovah God. And so it says they completed and they fulfilled all things. So they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. They made their sacrifice. You remember that because they were poor, they didn't have the money to pay for a lamb, so they brought two young pigeons. And I think it's remarkable that this young couple who didn't have much, of course they'd been on the road for quite a while now, a couple of months or so, and yet they knew they were going to be dedicated to the Lord. Christian author A.W. Tozer talks about this very thing of being sacrificial in our giving. He said, before the judgment seat of Christ, my service will be judged not by how much I have done, but by how much I could have done. In God's sight, my giving is not measured by how much I have given, but how much I have left over after my gift. And so they fulfilled all the things according to the law. They were Bible-believing, God-loving couple, and they were glad to do it. And then it says in that verse, they returned to Galilee into their own city, Nazareth. Nazareth was in the area of Galilee. What is not listed here, but is listed in Matthew chapter 2, is that between the completing of what God told them to do, the circumcision and naming for the child, the dedication of the child, and the purification, and between that and their return to Nazareth, two very important events happened. First of all, it was the visit of the wise men. Many people wonder where the wise men came in. Well, it's between here and the time that they actually returned to Nazareth. And then also, by an angel, they were warned of the slaughter of King Herod. And so they were able to escape to Egypt temporarily. All of that occurred between this verse, actually, and the next verse. You see, the Gospels, the first three Gospels, are called the synoptic. Gospels are the same look. They take different tracks, but all the same truths. And notice what it says, they performed all things. That's a neat word there. In the Greek, it's the word telos, which means not just uh, complete something, but bring it to perfection. It's the same word or the same part of the word as what Jesus said on the cross when he said, it is finished, which means masterpiece all that he'd accomplished. And so now let's pick up the story in verse number 40, and let's look at the childhood, the priesthood, and the manhood of the one who is called God. First of all, Jesus had a spiritual childhood. Verse number 40. In fact, let's all read it together, would you? you help me out here. My voice is a little raspy here today. Verse number 40, let's read it together. Ready, begin. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. That's 12 years right there. <laughs> That's the, that is a biography in a brief little bit. For a decade plus, he lived as a little baby, then as an infant, and then as a little child to the cusp of what the Jewish people would ad consider adulthood, which is 12. Look at verse 40, and the child grew, and the child grew. That in itself is hard to kind of fathom when you realize this is God 
in the flesh. But in his humanity, he grew and developed as all children. As basic as it sounds, it's actually very important that we affirm that we believe that. That Jesus was 100% fully human. Now, that does not discount his deity by any means, but the humanity of Jesus is as vital to who he is as his deity. He was born a human while still being totally divine. The concept of humanity coexisting with his deity is different. It's difficult and it's challenging for the mind to comprehend. And yet, in fact, it is a truth. He is holy man and holy God. Now, there are those who reject that. There are two common schools of thought about those who reject either his deity or his manhood. The first one is those, Abianism, that's spelled E-B-I-O-N-I-S-M, Abianism. It's a group that believes and declares that, yes, Jesus was a man. He was a 100% man, great man even, but he was certainly not God. Abianism. Then there is Docetism, spelled D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M. Docetism is the exact opposite. He was God, but he was not human, although their concept of God is more in a Gnostic way, kind of a surreal way. But those two concepts, Abianism and Docetism, really still exist today in different forms. You've met people, people knock on your door, and they'll say, uh, we want you to believe in Jehovah. They don't believe that Jesus is God. That's just another form of Abianism. Now, both viewpoints are unscriptural and false. And when you get to the bottom of them, they are driven by an unholy motivation. Jesus grew because he was 100% human. He had to be human. Why? For several reasons. Let me give you. First of all, only a perfect human could perfectly keep the law. We had to have a perfect human keep the law, thereby redeeming us from all of our guilt. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He had to be human in order to be a perfect human. Number two, he had to be a perfect human to satisfy the shedding of blood for the remission of sins. If he wasn't human, he couldn't shed his blood. And the shedding of blood, it says in Hebrews 9.22, is necessary for the remission of sins. And then there's a third reason why only a perfect human, he could only be a perfect, and we needed a perfect human, because only a perfect human could relate to humans in a way that angels, animals, or certainly deity never could. Hebrews 4.15, we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. And oh my, the feelings of our infirmities. And I notice the older I get, those infirmities and those feelings seem to be popping up more and more. But the fact of the matter was, Jesus was not a ghost. He was not something less than a human or more than a human. He grew in a very normal physical pattern. And yet he grew as no other child. Because he grew unaffected by any residual sin. 
me explain what I'm saying. For example, we might have, we might do something physically that might be sinful that affects us. For example, the sin of gluttony. He never suffered from the physical effects of extreme obesity, for example, because uh, he never was a gluttonous person. He never got drunk, and so therefore he never suffered from any of the physical effects of drunkenness or drug addiction. And so while he grew physically like any other human, he did not have any effects of sin. The child grew, it says, and waxed strong. He waxed strong. That is, he was a perfect physical specimen. Now, the Bible doesn't indicate he was beautiful by any standards, but in fact, it appears that he was very strong physical specimen, very capable. He worked with his father in the carpenter shop. If he lived in Nazareth, he had to be able to walk up and down hills, a lot of them. Uh, we know that when he was in his ministry, he would pray all night. That takes some physical doing for sure. And then, of course, to be tortured on the cross as he was. And so he was a strong physical specimen. But his main qualities was his spiritual and his godliness. And there are three qualities of godly childhood that we see in that. Number one, the Bible says he was strong in spirit. Look at verse 40. He waxed strong in spirit. He waxed strong in spirit. You know, one of the great thrills of my life is to watch people grow spiritually. I don't know anything that in ministry that compares to that joy. Day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, decade by decade, to watch the transformation that takes place in a young person, an older person, no matter who they are, is just thrilling. In the scriptures, the Bible calls a Christian a child of God. Well, if we're a child, then we need to grow every child normally grows and so but the growing of a christian is a spiritual growing notice what it says he waxed or he grew he grew strong in the lord that means we depend more on god the strange thing about growing in the lord is it's actually becoming weak in ourself and strong in the lord and isn't it incredible to come across some child some bright-eyed three or four year old that's quoting scriptures and speaking for God and singing praises. Like you're going to see tonight on this wonderful platform, all these children just singing. I mean, folks, if that doesn't bless your heart, it's just incredible. I would tell you to come. Even if you don't have children here or grandchildren, come. It'll just bless you. And then there is a unique spiritual mindedness of a God-fearing child that's like none other. You know, the major prophet Isaiah spoke about that. He said during the millennial period, Isaiah 11 and verse 6, he said the wolf is going to dwell with the lamb. We've heard that. But then what it says is a little child will lead them. It's interesting to know that when a child during the millennium is going to be so spiritual that he'll be leading around these ferocious animals. But I suggest that that means more than just the animals. I think he leads families. They lead uh, sometimes uh, towns and areas. And we have witnessed exactly that here in our church as we have seen children be the catalyst for a whole family serving the Lord. It was the child who came first, and then dad or then mom, then dad, then brothers and sisters. 
It's incredible. By the way, I just want to commend the home church families for having such a consistent time in your family. Many of them have Bible time several times a week. They're in church uh, on Sundays and Wednesdays. They pray before their meals. They have uh, scripture reading in the home. All of those things plant seeds. And then weeks, years, decades later, it pays off. I was just sitting in my office this morning thinking how I'm so grateful for all those family Bible times we had all those years. Strong in spirit. You may not see it. You may not think that they're really getting much, but I promise you they are. A strong in spirit childhood. Fill them with the things of God. Number two, Jesus was filled with wisdom. How was he different? He was filled with God's wisdom. Now, it's strange because he was omniscient as God. But in his humanity, the wisdom of God came upon him gradually until it appears that it peaked at 12, maybe more. But the fact is, as an infant, as a baby, he didn't understand the Bible. But at one, I'm sure he was beginning to already kind of know some things. By the time he was two or three or four, he was like some of these prodigies. I think I read, was it Mozart that wrote a, uh, one of his uh, great um, uh, oratorios or what do you call them at the age of six or something like that? Imagine then Christ in his humanity, how much he knew at four or five. If he had taken an IQ test, it would have blown off the charts. But he still learned gradually. As a human, it's just kind of in a supernatural way. And then it says he learned through personal experience. Look at Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8. This one has always blown me away. It says, though he were a son, that is, he, were God, he, were, he was God the son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. He learned obedience. Meaning, in his deity, he was God, but in his humanity, he actually learned obedience. That doesn't mean he learned obedience by being disobedient. It just means through the suffering he went through, he learned what real obedience means. Unbelievable. Well, part of that, of course, was conquering temptation. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 says, He was all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. He was tempted as a child to sin, but he didn't do it. He was tempted as a teenager. Every temptation you or I have ever faced as a young person or as a young adult or as an older adult, whatever the case, he has went through them all. And so by the time he was 12, he was spiritually mature. He understood the wisdom of God. As the Christmas carol that we sing, truly, he taught us to love one another. His law is love. His gospel is peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. Sweet hymns of joy in grateful chorus raise we. Let all within us praise his holy name. Christ is the Lord. Oh, praise his name forever. Yes, his childhood pointed to the fact that he was, in fact, the Messiah. He was strong in spirit. He was filled with wisdom. And then the Bible says he had the grace of God on him. 
That just simply means he had the beautiful hand of God's blessing on him. God the Father divinely supported him, similar to what it says at his baptism. In the next chapter of Luke, Jesus is going to be baptized. He didn't get baptized because he was a sinner that is displaying the fact he's walking in new life. He said, I'm getting baptized because it's the right thing to do. But when he got baptized, the Bible says that the dove came down, the symbol of God the Holy Spirit. God the Father spoke, the Spirit as a dove, and then God the Son, three in one. And it's, here's what the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Because he was well pleased in him, he put his blessing and his favor upon him. That means he constantly renewed his power, his heart. He restrained him from sin. He had the favor of God. He had a hedge of protection about him. Everything that Jesus did, we are told he did in the power of the Holy Spirit. I remember years ago meeting a dear sister. For some reason, this moment just sticks out in my head. She was a wonderful, God-fearing, very busy homeschooling mom. She came to the other building over there, and uh, I knew she was a busy mom, and all these little young ones trailing behind her like little ducklings. And I asked her, I said, how are you doing? And she looked at me with an, just this wonderful smile, and she said, blessed and highly favored, brother. Blessed and highly favored, brother. And over these years, I've heard that several times, said it myself. I always remember I was at Trader Joe's one day and uh, talking to one dear black sister and asked her how she was doing, and she said, blessed and highly favored, brother. <laughs> and, uh, and so I say to you, how are you doing today? Blessed and highly favored. That's how I am. That's what Jesus was to God the Father. He was blessed and highly favored because he had this life, this spiritual life. He was uh, uh, filled with the wisdom of God. He had a spiritual childhood. That's the best kind of childhood. I, it's all great to have fun with the kids, all wonderful to take them to Disneyland, but don't neglect the spiritual, a spiritual childhood. Number two, not only did he have a spiritual childhood, here's the main part of our message, and that is he had a sacrificial priesthood. That is, he became our high priest. Verse 41, now we come to the amazing incident at the age of 12. Now verse 12, it says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. That's a very normal thing for a Jewish family to do, is to go to Jerusalem for the Passover. There were three major holidays in the life of every Jewish person. First of all, the Passover. The Passover. This was a one-day feast. It happened on the 15th day of Nisan which is our March or April, it celebrated that God was the deliverer of His people. It memorialized a special event that's recorded in Exodus chapter 12. Then the second event that every Jewish person, major event was the day of Pentecost or the Feast of Pentecost, which was 50 days after the uh, Passover. And that was the feast of the coming harvest and it was a reminder that God is the provider. The third thing that every Jewish family would celebrate is the Feast of the Tabernacle. 
That is the celebration of God's provision of manna. You know, the heavenly little croutons that fell in the wilderness and and they were living out there in tents and God took care of them. And so the Passover, they observed the Passover, Mary and Joseph and their family. Now, it differed with every family. Uh, Every family kind of did their own thing. Typically, just the men would go to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And they would usually go just every three years because of how much effort it took. For a woman to go to the Passover feast was really significant. And in the Jewish tradition, it would mean that she had a very dedicated devotion to God. But it says not only did Mary go with Joseph, but it says they went every year to the Passover. Folks, these this young couple was absolutely devoted to God. They were the real deal, for sure. They, When they served God, it was not in name only. I mean, they served the Lord together. When uh, Pauline and I were dating and, and at an older age, it was interesting, but I told her, honey, you know, serving the Lord, both of us, we have a good life by ourselves, uh, like steak and lobster. But I said, you know, as good as steak is by itself and lobster as it is by itself, it's better together. And uh, so uh, serving the Lord together, that's what Joseph and Mary did, like steak and lobster. Verse number 42, and when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. Now, that may sound like a, just an easy thought, but I'm telling you, that was not an easy thing. That was 80 miles from Nazareth up to Jerusalem, and even more if they went out east to avoid dangerous Samaria, across the Jordan River, around some little foothills, back across the Jordan River, and up the backside there to Jerusalem. It's very probable that they had five children in tow, Jesus and four younger half-brothers and sisters. We know that when Joseph and Mary arrived uh, there with their entourage. Jerusalem would have been swollen by thousands of pilgrims. They had come from all over the known world. They would first thing they would do coming to the city would try to find their accommodations. They'd try to find a family. They didn't have motels, so you had to find somebody who'd be willing to house you. If they didn't have, maybe they had relatives there, but many times they didn't. Then the first item of business would be purchase a sacrifice from one of the vendors. If they couldn't sacrifice a lamb, they would uh, sacrifice, as we said before, one of the pigeons or something like that. Then they would get some food for their family. They'd get some pita bread, some cucumbers, some cheese, some olives, some dates, uh, whatever they could get to have their meals. It was a very busy, bustling time. Many beggars were out there everywhere asking for food, Roman soldiers jostling the crowds. Then they would line up with the others at the temple. The father, Joseph, would go. He would take the sacrifice. I'm sure that he took Jesus, being the oldest. He took him with him. They would then take that lamb. Then he would uh, sacrifice that lamb. The blood would be taken from that lamb and would be sloshed on the altar. Now, Jesus had gone every single year with his dad. But this year, on his 12th year, it was different. 
I'm sure, because the Bible says he grew in wisdom, all of a sudden this year, that meant something as it never meant before. I'm sure that he was getting the sense as he was growing up, but now he realized that he was in fact that lamb. And two decades later, he would be the one that would be sacrificed. And it would be his blood that would be sloshed on that cross. The reality of his mind must have been overwhelming. As a 12-year-old young man, someone wrote, Mary had a little lamb, obedient son of God. Everywhere the father led, his feet were sure to trod. Mary had the little lamb crucified on the tree, the rejected son of God. He died to set men free. And so this is godly Joseph, and he's walking in obedience to the laws of God. Verse 43, and when they had fulfilled the days, they returned. And the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother knew not of it. Now it says, when they had fulfilled the days. Now, as I mentioned, most families didn't come every year. Uh, if they did come, they usually only stayed two days. The feast of the Passover was one day, and then a seven-day feast of unleavened feet, bread. Most people would stay two days. They'd come for the Passover. They'd get the start of the unleavened bread, and then they would go home. The reason is because that's an eight-day span. Many of them were uh, carpenters. They, were, uh, they had uh, livestock back home that had to be fed. And so they needed to get back to their businesses and to their homes. To be able to stay there that whole time, including the time of travel, uh, you'd have to set aside maybe two or even three weeks. And getting someone to cover for you wasn't always easy. And so for young Joseph and Mary, it was an amazing thing. They were just dedicated. Every year they just did it. They just said, look, we're going we're gonna to set everything aside for two or three years, and we are going to Jerusalem. Everybody knew that, and uh, they were a dedicated group. But now here is where the plot thickens. The child Jesus tarried behind. Now you've got to know that Jesus was not disobedient. He was not irresponsible. Uh, his, and I don't want to blame the parents either. I don't, we can't say, well, you should have known where your son was. Well, um, first of all, there was a lot of people. Second of all, they had never known Jesus to do anything but what he was told. But at this time, it was different. He had gotten <coughs> swept up in his mission. And so in verse 44, it says, but they supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem, seeking him. Now the women and the children were up in the front. The men were usually, and the older sons were in the back. Joseph probably thought Jesus was in the back with Mary. Mary, or in the, in the front with Mary, Mary thought he was probably in the back with Joseph uh, since he was more of an adult. But they gathered up in the evening as they usually did as a family. And then Joseph said to Mary, Where, where's Jesus? He said, well, I thought you had Jesus. And said, well, I don't know. Where's Jesus? Now, you may think, how is that possible to leave one of your kids behind? But if you have a large family, I can tell you it's actually quite easy even with today's technology. Uh, we left Elizabeth once. Um, and why, why do we always leave her? But anyway, 
To this day, she will tell you she was traumatized. In fact, she'll be happy to tell you that it wasn't the fact that we left her that was so bad, but that we took so long to notice we had left her about that. Well, I can imagine it was a frantic moment for Mary and Joseph. They loved their children. They had all these other children looking at them. But there was only one option. We got to go back. So they had to stay the night, I'm sure. They wouldn't leave in the middle of the night. It was too dangerous. So I'm sure all night long they were praying, oh, God, keep our son safe. And where was Jesus overnight anyway? But at any rate, they get it before dawn, make the 20-mile trek or so back across the Jordan Valley, up the hill, into Jerusalem, and they're going to try to find Jesus, verse 46. And it came to pass after three days, meaning it took a, they were a day journey out, they were a day journey in, and then they took a day while they were in Jerusalem to look around. And they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. Now, if you had been left behind, where would they find you in a city? Where would they find you? I don't know. Um, but they found Jesus at church. They found him at the temple, sitting somewhere in the portico, somewhere there among the bustling crowds, sitting among the teachers. And that was actually a very traditional thing. Jewish rabbis would sit when they would teach. And so there he was, sitting in the midst of the teachers. They probably allowed him to sit there because at 12, he had gone through the bar mitzvah ceremony. Bar mitzvah now is what they would call it. Back then they didn't call it that. That is when they become uh, responsible for their own actions. During the Passover, wonderful teachers who had been scattered all over the uh, Orient, the Middle East, had come back to Jerusalem. So there were some great Bible teachers. There were wonderful men of God. And they, it was a rare opportunity for Jesus who so loved the Bible, afforded him something that he would have never been able to happen at Nazareth. I mean, it was such an out-of-the-way place. You wouldn't have all these uh, movers and shakers. And so what was Jesus doing? Three things. Number one, it says he heard. He was a listener. Well, if you're going to learn, you have to listen. That's what the brother of our Lord James said later. James chapter 1, verse 19, be swift to hear swift to hear. We're usually swift to talk and slow to hear, sadly. Not only was he hearing, but he was asking questions, it says. He was asking them questions. Now, let me just uh, point out about asking questions. He didn't ask questions like these woke, anti-Semitic professors at Harvard do as a critic. He wasn't asking questions like they ask. No, he was asking as a humble and true learner. He was desiring to know. Later, Jesus would tell his disciples, he said, ask. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. Ask, and it will, you will receive. Seek. God doesn't mind us asking questions and seeking as long as we are seeking for the things of God. He was hearing. He was asking and then the amazing thing was he was answering. These doctors of the law, these great Bible scholars, were being blown away by the wisdom of this 12-year-old prodigy. Verse number 7, 47, And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. And I will tell you, 
that today a 12-year-old, God-fearing, Bible-loving, Christian young man or woman has more answers than the average 70-year-old agnostic or atheist. No, I'm telling you, they got answers for this world's problems. And that's why the Apostle Paul said in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 3, be ready to give an answer. These young people have answers because they have the Bible. Well, his parents finally see him. They're astonished by this situation. Verse 48, they saw him. They were amazed. His mother said, son, why hast thou dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. Jesus was always amazing people. And by the way, the more you get to know him, you'll be amazed too. Whatever you think that you think about God right now, the more you get to know him, the more amazing he gets. He's the only, God is the only one I've ever known that the more you get to know about him, it's just amazing. Where went Jesus? I'm sure Mary was thinking, where did you stay? What have you been eating? Where have you been, son? I've been here in the temple. Well, did you ask or did you just come in here and barge your way into where these teachers were? Son. And then she gets a, she gets a little bit put out, a little bit perturbed. Why have you treated us this way? And I get it. You know, you've had a loved one that you thought should be here and you were so worried sick about them. And they finally show up and you find out it was nothing and then you get mad at them. Well, you know, that's what they were. They went from you know, sad to mad and just like that. Well, but I will say this. Her heart was injured at this moment, but if she had remembered back what Simeon had said, back in verse 35, uh, he said to her, he said, Mary, your son's going to put a sword through your heart. I'm sad to tell you that, but it took 12 years, and here's the first poke of the sword. Well, she cranks it up a bit, and she said, puts a little guilt trip on Jesus. She said, we have, your father and I both have been sorrowing after you. Why did you cause us so much worry? And then Jesus says this amazing, profound statement, verse 49. He said, why were you looking for me? Don't you know that I had to be about my father's business? You see, he was a priest. He was a priest of God. He was God's representative on earth. He knew now who he was. He knew now why he had come. And he said, you should have known, really. You should have known that I'm not what like anybody else. You know who my people are, and you know this is not, this is my house. Nazareth is, I'm just there for a while. My time with you is temporary. I love you, and I respect you, and I'll follow you, but my life is not to be spent as a, in the carpenter's house in Nazareth. I've got something that the Father wants. Verse number 50, it says, They really didn't understand the saying that he spoke unto them, but he was telling them he was the Messiah. He had humbled himself to be put on the form of mankind. And that's one of the great things, I think, about baptism, for example. You know, baptism is the great equalizer. No matter how successful you are or how much uh, we earn or whatever we have, the water, whatever you go under the water, we're all the same under there. And that was Jesus. He humbled himself to be like everybody else. He had a spiritual childhood. He had a, and was getting ready for a sacrificial priesthood. 
And now we're going to finish with an exceptional manhood. The Bible says he goes back to Nazareth. He didn't insist on staying in Jerusalem at 12 years old. Now, it's very likely we never hear about Joseph after this moment. This is the only time we hear about Joseph. We hear about Mary several times, but never Joseph. Somewhere between 12 and the time Christ was crucified and approximately 33, we assume and think that Joseph must have passed away. Relatively young man, probably in his 30s or 40s, to have passed away like that. I'm sure Jesus was there during his mother's grief and his family's grief. Maybe the fact that almost two decades passed before he gets into his ministry was to accommodate, to take care at the time that his brothers could get old enough to be able to care for mom and others were there. But what did he do during this time? There are three things we can say about him. Number one, he was compliant. Verse 51, it says he went down with them and came to Nazareth. And he was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. Eighteen years he was submissive. He had been submissive already. But the interesting word is a word which, it's a military term, which means to remember who your commander is, to arrange yourself under another. It's the same word. The Bible talks about wives to their husbands and employees to an employee or in a church in response to church leadership or children to parents. It's about semper fi. It's about being loyal, not blind, not blindly loyal, not endorsing or enabling sin, but just recognizing the situation and being humble. It says that Mary kept all these things in her heart. She treasured these things, and she had a lot to think about for sure. She was thinking through all of the things that were God was doing in her life. He was compliant to his parents until he was 30. He was teachable, number two. He increased in wisdom. There's that word again, increased in wisdom. Now, as we said earlier, this doesn't mean his divine nature grew. That couldn't be. It's his human nature. The divinity of Christ manifested itself in degrees. He was holy in his practical human life by degrees. Martin Luther said, Ah, dearest Jesus, holy child, make thee a bed soft, undefiled, within my heart that it may be a quiet chamber kept for thee. That holiness. He was compliant. He was teachable, and finally, he was healthy. It says he grew in stature. God the Son grew as an infant, a child, a youth, a man. He was not a superman. He didn't have a Greek godlike appearance. In fact, he didn't even stand out in a crowd. You may remember when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas had to plant a kiss on him to be able to identify him. There's nothing unique about him like, oh, there's the big tall guy with the big muscles and the handsome guy. No, his beauty was inside and his outside was just a wonderful uh, master, was a wonderful frame around the masterpiece of God. He grew in favor with God and man. He grew in favor 
with God. He had the power of God on his life, and he was used by God in the Holy Spirit's power. In fact, we're told in Luke chapter 4 and verse 1 and following that his life is a picture of what it's like to be Spirit-filled. May I be Spirit-filled. May you be Spirit-filled today. God, give us your power. Use us like you used Jesus. He had a tremendous childhood, an amazing priesthood, and thank God for his exceptional manhood. Simeon took a look at Jesus and embraced him with the arms of faith. The doctors of the law asked him questions and were astounded. The people of Nazareth watched him grow with God's obvious favor. Now, folks, as surely as I am standing here this morning, you and I both know that as we read through this passage, God came in the flesh the first time. And that same God who came the first time has promised he's going to come back a second time. Will you receive him? I love going to the Sacramento International Airport. I especially like going to, whenever we go there, I like going to Terminal A. When we pick up somebody, maybe a guest speaker or something, because at Terminal A, you can sit in a little seating area. You can watch them come down the escalator to pick up their bags. And I love watching because you get to be there and greet your loved ones. And so there's always people there with signs. There's little children. There's always lovers. Then they come down there and they grab one another and they kiss each other. I'll lean over and kiss Pauline, you know. We've got to take advantage of that. We just met each other, you know. But there's always such great joy. The greeting coming down, that great greeting one another. Also, I've been in airports where I've seen an airport team, uh, the police, walking through the airport with someone in custody, someone who has uh, handcuffs on. You know, I think that's going to be somewhat like the coming of Christ, a grand reunion with our loved ones when Jesus comes, a grand reunion with Jesus when he comes again. But how sad it will be for some who are bound and cast into outer darkness. What Jesus does with you depends upon what you do with him. You can accept him. You can reject him. You can crown him or you can crucify him, but you cannot ignore him. Would you bow your head with me? We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.